Shit Platypus Says, episode 61. Hello and welcome to a special edition of Shit Platypus Says, the commentary on the commentary on the left. My name is Pamela Nogales. I'm one of your co-hosts. This is a longer, lengthier version of SPS, a back-to-school edition, just in time for the new school year when the students are back in the classroom. In the first part of the episode, I sit down with my ex-co-host, Lori Rojas, and we discuss the recent Russell Brandt controversy. Brandt has been in the news lately under some heat as a result of very public allegations of sexual assault and misconduct. We take this up in the context of the ongoing sex panic and the transformation of feminism after Me Too which leads us to discuss the Barbie movie. Ah, yes. In the second part of this episode, our members Evan and the current president of Platypus, Aaron, sit down with Benjamin Studebaker, the author of the recently published book, The Chronic Crisis of American Democracy, The Way is Shut. Studebaker explains that the crisis of American democracy is deeply embedded in the American economic system and develops a theory of legitimacy crisis, as he puts it. They take this up in their interview and ask some questions about the current state of American politics, as well as the formulations of the ends of a left political movement. We will link to the book in the episode description, as well as to several panels that we've had Benjamin Studebaker on. We hope that you enjoy this expanded edition of SPS. If you like it, leave us a, a comment and perhaps you will find more of these longer episodes in the future. If you like the podcast, share it. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us get the word out about SPS. Okay, here we go. Well, another another sexual allegation. It's getting old. Someone got canceled. Russell Brandt's getting canceled. I think, you know, I don't know how effective this is all going to be. I'm sure the man is going through some some shit now. Like, he made a little announcement on his YouTube channel, which is crazy popular, right? Why he has six, like, six million people. Six million people, right? Six so he's really <laughs> just become a target. Like, he's, that's, I mean, that's kind of what Glenn Greenwald was talking about on his show, how... You know, because he's been an outspoken voice against the institutions, against the establishment, that he's put a target on his back. And the more popular he's become, the more that it was welcoming this kind of ire from the establishment. Yeah, but I'm almost not. I'm surprised it didn't happen earlier. I'm like the stuff with COVID. I followed him on COVID when I when Russell Brand like re-entered my headspace, my YouTube time. 
was around COVID, like his coverage of the mm-hmm. media during COVID, of the government during COVID, of restrictions and limitations on our civil liberties, right? He was very concerned with questions of freedom during COVID. So I, you know, I, that I, I connected to that. But that's with, what this is about. And this that's is, exactly. this is, this is about getting him back from being like an outspoken voice against the media, against the establishment, against governments. Like we can't let him get more popular kind of mentality. We have to delegitimize him, right? I think that's the aim to like, delegitimize. Take away, like take away the trust that people have in him by calling him a rapist. And what, Glenn Greenwald was reporting was that, you know, he's a journalist, he's plugged in. He's like, basically major outlets have been trying to do this to him for a long time. Major outlets have been trying to target him in this way for a long time. And they were just not able to, they were going to everyone he's ever dated, everyone he's ever slept with. And they were trying to get something on him for years. So Glenn's saying like, they, like, this is the worst they could get, but it's been years in the making. I guess just to respond to what you were saying about how, like, I'm surprised that it's happening now and not then. I think it's because they didn't have anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That to latch on to and now that they think it's like their Hail Mary, but okay, no, that makes sense, of course. Also, that it's been building up for a while, they've been trying to build up the case, but they didn't have anything, and they had this thing now, which is also extremely vague. And also, right. and being an alcoholic, he was, yes, he was in treatment for substance abuse, I think more than just alcohol, he was yeah, also yeah, a yeah, sex yeah. addict. And... He talked about it, he had a stand up about it, and his cocaine problem, yeah. Yeah, that dude definitely had a cocaine problem. <laughs> like, I've watched Channel 4. Um, but the young Russell Brand is also his, like, very useful, like, going to the streets, interviewing the people in the streets, and, like, criticisms of Parliament. And He was electric. He's, yeah. like, an entertainer. <laughs> He's, yeah, yeah. Um, he can be a little annoying, but... <laughs> You know, and it's, his it's initial concerns was about like questions of like neo Nazis in the UK too, right? So, like, well, he was a Corbyn happened. supporter, right? He was a big time Jeremy Corbyn supporter, called himself yeah. a socialist. Yeah. Um, like he was on that bandwagon, and you know, Glenn was basically pointing out how people are accusing him of moving to the right, which is the same language they used to describe what Glenn is doing. Like people are moving to the right. And he used this opportunity of the Brandt controversy to say that what people mean by that, right. That moving to the right is like really unclear since when has opposition to the establishment been a right-wing phenomenon. Exactly. The question of freedom of the press being considered a right-wing phenomenon. And he's taught basically saying that this is the authoritarianism of quote unquote people on the left, right? And what he means by that are just like liberal Democrats. Um, the hysterical liberal Democrats, I think, too. <laughs> it's really getting at the emotional manipulation of the authoritarianism of the liberal Democrats. And uh, the, the clips that were part of this TV special that was broadcasted recently, the music girl, like it's so dramatic, like the angles, you know, it's like real like filmic manipulation of this interview with this woman who's like speaking about her experience. And also the way that they've reported it 
is really fucked up because they're kind of they're lumping all of these different women that he had sexual relations with as if all of them said that they were raped but that's not actually what's going on only one of them has said that he had intercourse with her when he didn't didn't want to no no the other ones are not are not sexual assaults no no there's one woman who was 16 which is um age of consent in the uk yeah yeah and so that's not a crime um but then now in retrospect she says that she was being groomed and so, like, that's one allegation. And so all of these women which have different stories about what they found manipulative or whatever about Russell Brand. I'm not trying to be callous because I think I can come off as, like, sounding callous. Like, I don't know what went on between these two people. I have no idea. What I do know is that there have been no criminal charges against him. Yes. And that he is being tried in the media. And he's just being crucified, which will affect his career. And that's the aim of these people, just to take him down and to delegitimize his voice and to just say he's a bad man. It doesn't matter if he was tried in the court of law. He's just a bad guy. And 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 that's basically the link to the Johnny Depp, right? Because I thought you were gonna say Assange. Well, that's another that's the triangulation for a moment, perhaps, and then Elon Musk. Yeah. Johnny Depp needed to be tried in public, right? Like he needed to sue her to show the evidence that she had no evidence and that the evidence pointed in against her favor. Like, right. He needed the media spectacle of it in order to clear his name as a good guy. Right. Alcoholic, toxic, problematic, whatever you want to call it and double that. But he wasn't what she had accused him of. Right. It shows you the way that the now Russell Brand situation is precisely based on like his career is over, whether or not there is a crime. Right. And like maybe maybe like I feel like this is the test. Has this worn out? Like, is this over? Is this kind of yeah, shit? Yeah, yeah. I don't really think it's going to work. I don't think it's going to work. Well, that's what I'm saying. Well, that's the thing. So is his career over? Like, I don't know. Actually, I think that he's coming in in a moment. When people are like, oh, this again? Like, well, okay. Trump shows and us, you know the Trump fuck- shows us that it doesn't work, right? Trump shows us that it doesn't work to just try to vilify someone in the media. It doesn't work. Well, we'll see 2024. But, you know, the women that are speaking in this documentary, the way that they're presenting it is that he's too powerful to take down. And it's very bizarre after Me Too yeah. That took down politicians, Harvey Weinstein, one of the most powerful men in Hollywood. Also, like that they're like, oh, like, you know, I just didn't speak up because he's just so powerful. And it just Blame it just excuse. doesn't ring true, you know? It just has this kind of lies. I don't know. It, it just again, I don't know if these women are lying, but it just sounds like bullshit. I'm not even saying they're lying, but it's a victimization. Right. Like they have to self-victimize through the process. And that's that's a problem for me. Yes, of course. There's this play and instrumentalization of victimhood, which is, you know, what we experienced feminism to have become through Me Too. It's like believe, believe women, right? Like believe these these women. And and now it's happening again, but it just doesn't ring like now I just I I could be wrong. Okay. My barometer of the general response to this may be wrong, but it just seems so stale now. 
Yeah. No, I was telling my roommate, I was like, I remember being in bars in 2017 in Berlin, being in bars in Berlin in 2017 with a room full of women, half of which were lesbians, basically telling me that the revolution was happening because of me, too. <laughs> you know, and like, I, it, it oh, my God, the lesbians, the lesbians. And, and, and like, this is like the last thing we need. Like, this is the last demand. It must, you know, like. That's it. And I'm like, you know, I, I was like, this is quite a middle class demand because I don't know any like housekeeper <laughs> that has been like actually probably sexually assaulted by their dueños or, you know, um, bosses, whatever. Uh, and in Latin America, especially right from like the experience of the country that I know, they would never like feel like me too was like fulfilling the them some sense of like final task of what how their needs are being met right like <laughs> uh so it felt profoundly yeah. a middle class like like realization that it wouldn't affect like actually a great deal of women in fact uh the working class women um right because they didn't have money right like this is something that we've i think we've said on this podcast and it's something that, you know, was pretty obvious from the jump that these celebrities, the people that were able to wage a successful campaign against these men had access to means to do so in order to defend themselves against yeah. against people with a shit ton of money and power. Um, and that that's that's what it was about. I mean, so I don't know. I think. The question is actually, what kind of response is Barbie to all of this, right? Because Barbie is a response to me, too. Yeah, I was going to say feminism. I was going to pivot to Barbie because I was like, so what is the feminism brand that Barbie? Because so this is the way that Barbie's been presented, at least in like popular mainstream media. Um, a lot of coverage has been about how it's anti-men how you know yeah. like men are being portrayed women broke as, up with their boyfriends after watching the women movie. broke up with their boyfriends after watching it um that men are portrayed as cuckolds that you know there is the domination of these entrepreneurial women in the movie and there's like the crazy feminist barbie like there's all these there, I've heard a lot of talk about how this the is weird the one is the feminist Barbie. <laughs> yeah, the one that always um, the is like doing the splits or something. <laughs> the irony, like I'm Ken, is it? It's the SNL girl. Yeah. Um, I have to say that I watched the movie and then I thought, okay, like I, I get like, like that, that stuff, but it also seemed to be about something else actually and and i was like are people too bogged down by the pseudo feminism of the movie not to even consider like what the movie might really be about you know like as an expression of our moment i don't know i, I feel don't like know. it pushed hard on absurdity right of like the situation of women in our moment like i think it actually was pushing yeah. humor direction yeah. to express all these different kinds of absurdities all of which are completely contradictory to each other yeah. like it does play that and like but it's consciously confused right it, i felt like the the most redeemable thing i can i can 
say for I think I believe it. Yeah, that it's kind of consciously confused. Yeah, that it is absurd that there is a kind of poking at self conceptions of femininity on many different like sides. Like that seems true. Um, is it self conscious? This is something that I was listening to a podcast that has been started by one of the graduate art students at the University of Chicago. And they were like talking about Barbie as a symptom of um, a kind of neo-modernism or like a post-post-modernity turn, or I forget now how they, a meta-modernism, that's what they called it. That like this attempt to like be self-conscious in the film. And, and I was listening to it with a level of skepticism because I was like, this is a big budget Hollywood film. But it's superficial. It's superficial. It's a superficial, mm-hmm. like, I, I'll guide you the, the, the guess. It's also superficial in the way that he tries to do that. I, did you ever see Frances Ha, her black and white film? Uh, it was like an indie, like. No, no I didn't see that film. I thought about that a little bit just for context, right? Like, it kind of like that movie, what? that woman ties to this one is that basically the woman is going through an existential crisis, mm-hmm. right? And tries to characterize a certain kind of existential crisis women go through in the present, mm-hmm. right? And it's a post me too version of that crisis. Um, it's the post me too version of that crisis where women are, they believe somehow in their minds, if I can get through it, let me just try to get through it, that they've internalized this like supremacy of like female domination, right? Because at the same time that there's victimhood in me too, there's also this like power and like, you know, women need to be believed and there will be CEOs and there will be women presidents, but then Barbie goes to the real world and realizes that it's not true, that like what she's been told and what's in her head somehow is false in reality. And she doesn't know how to reconcile that contradiction. So she has to like return to the make-believe world, but she also wants to be real. She wants to be real, but she wants the make-believe world to be real, but it can't be real. And so the way that reality is, like, assumed by her or she embodies reality is when she goes to the gynecologist at the end. Or the moment right before that, which I thought was the ending of the movie, and I was like, please don't be the ending of the movie, uh, where she basically says, like, that she doesn't love Kim, right? Like, like I feel like a lot of it was leading up to the moment where she says, says like, it's okay, I don't love Ken. Kind of like, you don't have to have a man to be happy to resolve your existential crisis, right? Um, but didn't and- she not love Ken from the jump? I mean, like, that's not a revelation, right? Because that's what starts the movie, because Ken is, like, living yeah. for Barbie, and then she's just like, why do you want to stay? It's girls' night. It's girls' night every night. And she's just not interested in him. And that's why he's like a cuckold. And he's like, I'm just made to be Barbie's servant. Like, I'm made for Barbie. And she doesn't want me. And I don't know what to do with myself. And so then he becomes, you know, the macho, like, whatever, like, bro. Um, People are being so mean to Ryan Gosling. They're like, he is too old to play this part. No way! Oh, that's like a flip on objectification, though. <laughs> right? Yeah. 
I liked my favorite. I love Ryan Gosling. I don't know. I I knew he was gonna be perfect. Both of them were fucking perfect for the role, and it did add to like the fun of the movie. Margaret Robbie was so good. <laughs> I love Margaret Robbie. So she, I the best part of the movie, I thought, and maybe it's because I've got like a place for the schmaltziness in me somewhere is the scene before she returns to reality when she meets the maker of Barbie in that white space in yes. the in that non in the non space and then the Billie Eilish song comes on which has been playing the entire you know she's been the lead motif for the film and she has this question of meaning right because she wants to she wants to be like the people that make meaning that's that's what she wants to do and yeah. the creator Ruth I think her name is I forget she just says like you know you're going to die and there's all kinds of like things that you're not going to like and she just she wants to make things and so that for her for Barbie that's what it means to be human and to be yeah. real like to to make meaning but then the funny thing is that it does wrap up in this like visit to the gynecologist, which I felt was very much again like the absurdity of the obsession of like Vaginas. the body of the women that were undergoing, right? It's like Barbie <laughs> has these aspirations of being a maker of meaning, and then she's like, So I'm going to the gynecologist to make a baby. I'm like, Oh, <laughs> yeah. Or yeah. to just be able to have like free sex. Who knows? She has yeah. a chance. Maybe she's just getting her birth control. Yeah, of course. <laughs> no, no, I, that was my first instinct because at least that would have been what I would have related to. Like, gynecologist for me is about getting my birth control. <laughs> uh, Bitch, no you know you'd be checking those STDs. <laughs> Actually, no, I need to do that more often. Barry is going into the gynecologist <laughs> because she's worried. <laughs> That she may have gotten some crabs <laughs> from that dirty ass Ken. <laughs> Especially after like syphilis came back in Berlin during the pandemic. <laughs> it's like, what? Syphilis? You don't know not, this? Not syphilis? <laughs> yes. What? Yes. <laughs> There's this one artist that says it on, during an art basel talk. He just reveals it. He's like, yeah, gay dude. Asian Asian British like gay artist, very famous, like very well known in our Basel like video YouTube thing. And he's like, Yeah, weird things happen in our environments in which we create art. Like in Berlin, there is now a syphilis outbreak. I got syphilis. <laughs> We've like rebooted like the like this this disease. We're really in the 19th century. <laughs> Who just regress so far? And back. I loved that he just said it. I was like, no shame whatsoever. I was like, I tell everybody that story. I was like, that shit happened in Berlin, like <laughs> in the pandemic at at Kit Kat. <laughs> at Kit Kat for sure, at Kit Kat. We all know that. <laughs> that should be the end of the film. Barbie goes to Kit Kat. Barbie goes um, to Kit Kat. <laughs> so, wrapping this up, feminism's become absurd. The theater of it all right now. Yeah is just so beyond absurd. It's just so absurd. It's just propaganda. Absurd propaganda. It's just like absurd. But it's not very effective propaganda. Is it effective propaganda? Like, it's, are people really like, yes, Russell Brandt, bad guy, no. Well, not people no. that we know, but I, I'm pretty sure that we step out of a certain, like two or three degrees of friendship circles and maybe yes. Uh, but I don't think it's going to work. Like, you know, like I, I think that 
like it's good that you brought up the really high point of the Barbie movie. And the question is like, was that scene a cliche also in its own way, superficial in its own way? Or did it really make the viewer reflect upon themselves and the reflect this question for themselves as creators of meaning? Uh, and do people it was really- schmaltzy it was schmaltzy it was it was really it was it was pulling at my heartstrings because the Billie eilish song was going so it really wasn't a moment of reflection so much as a moment of like profound like melancholy yeah. I, what i felt at that moment was like a, a deep melancholy um and 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 but it was honest i, I don't know like that's what i mean <laughs> earlier when i said i didn't mean to say that it was superficial i just meant that it's not like an avant-garde film in that way, but that it may be showing us something true, like something real. It's a symptom. It's a symptom for sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. So profound melancholy. Everyone's depressed. That makes sense too. Everyone's depressed after COVID. Is it still the case? I guess so. Even in Florida, yeah. People have mental health concerns, even in sunny state Florida. Uh, Everyone's after- still fucked up, huh? So fucked up. Like the patterns of work, traffic, like it's just like how people drive is crazier. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and final thought about Barbie was, yeah, in the end, actually super fun, absurdity play, but I feel a little mediocre. I feel a little like deflated when I was. It was way too overhyped for me. Way too overhyped for me. Yeah, I don't know if I'd be like, Barbie, you got to see it. You know, it really gripped people, though, as a phenomenon. Like I was. That's it. The- it was a bigger phenomenon. I think I guess. Yeah. The thing really was that they just created. It was like one of the best marketing moments of film history. <laughs> Unprecedented. <laughs> yeah. Unprecedented. It was Poor wild. Oppenheimer, like- man. Poor Oppenheimer. <laughs> but at least they Open played who? with it. Open who? <laughs> <laughs> Barbenheimer. <laughs> If you put Barbie on Google, like when the film was being marketed, your entire phone turned pink and there were hearts that flowed upward. And the whole thing, like your entire screen of your phone was hijacked by Google, who made sure that you understood that the Barbie movie was coming. It was wild. Fascist. So you might have heard this controversy about Barbie being called a fascist in the movie. Yeah, you heard that right. Director Gerwig didn't hold back and she had Sasha, a human teenage girl, call Barbie a fascist in one of the scenes. It caused quite a stir and Mattel, you know, the company behind Barbie, wasn't exactly thrilled about it. In the film, Barbie gets all emotional after hearing that comment and defends herself, saying she doesn't control railways or commerce so she can't be a fascist. But hey... I had to like pull it up. The Barbie's a fascist. That was like for me, like a scene where the movie showed you, like raised a question that show how like flat that question was in that moment, how insignificant and meaningless saying calling someone a fascist had become. Right. It's a bratty teenager pissed off at like an older lady that's like pretty blonde and wearing pink. Right. Well, she's like the melancholic, like kind of emo ish kid um, that basically calls her a fascist. Um, And, you know, it, it just shows how meaningless that has become. Right. And it's funny because she's a little bully because the friends in the yeah. circle she's sitting with, some of them actually like Barbie, but they feel like can't say it because yeah. she has told them that that's wrong. Yeah. 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 I think there are definitely moments where 
the director had these snippets of just the bizarre way that people talk about women and femininity and like being like a free human being. Like there are moments where you're like glimpsing at something and it just scurries away, right? Like it just, there's no moment wherein it becomes an opening to a more ambivalent question, but maybe that's the question that we need to ask. Like, is there, ambivalence like in the yeah in the film. yeah there is there is a bit of ambivalence right yeah. because because barbie she thinks that being human is something more than what it actually is at least yeah. in the world that she ends up entering it's aspirational for her it's aspirational for her it's aspirational for her i don't know there is something there right people are suffering through the nostalgia of what they thought could happen we're yeah. like mourning our dreams <laughs> of being president of yeah 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 right <laughs> oh my yeah. god one of those was definitely the thread on the pregnant barbie that they discontinued <laughs> like i don't oh, know what those are funny <laughs> and, and that's funny my favorite is when will ferrell in the office like remember proustian barbie that didn't yeah. sell <laughs> i know i know <laughs> That got a giggle out of me for sure. Even maybe a snort. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, we should wrap up. <laughs> How's school going? <laughs> um, getting ready to go back to school, <laughs> preparing for the children that are coming into the little classrooms, the their patter of little feet. <laughs> coming into my classroom next week um i'm curious to know what they're thinking about these days we'll see yeah for me it's countdown to basel now (laughs) that's nothing to do with politics (laughs) (laughs) well yeah um (laughs) well I mean, let's be real. <laughs> That's where the worst elements of the liberal, like me. Yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah. they did Ivanka Trump. It's hilarious, but. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, like, there you can find people that the propaganda worked on them, like, yeah. for sure. I think that's that's definitely the crowd. Um, yeah, that's yeah. definitely the crowd. I, I We'll see what the kids think. I'm always excited to know what they're, oh. what they're thinking <laughs> Okay, mi amor. Bye. Bye. So your new book is titled The Chronic Crisis of American Democracy, The Way is Shut. Not many would disagree that American democracy is in crisis, but it is possible to point to several moments in recent history as paradigmatic, perhaps the debacle of the Iraq war, the Great Recession of 2008, or the 2016 election of Donald Trump. So in the broadest terms, why did you write this book and why now? What does the world need to know about the crisis of American democracy in 2023? Well, I think that right now there is this perception that democracy is in danger in the United States of collapsing in favor of some kind of authoritarian regime. 
And I think that that is a total misreading of the character of this crisis. At the same time, I am not somebody who says everything is fine and everything is perfectly normal and we don't have any problems. What I think has happened is that we've gotten away from a lot of what we had started, I thought maybe to learn after 2008, that this economic system is producing a lot of stress. It's making people very unhappy. And when people are unhappy, they do crazy stuff that doesn't make sense, that makes things worse for everybody. Uh, and we've gotten away from that. And I think we started getting away from it after Trump was elected. And it became important to the political establishment to say that Trump is not caused by economic factors, that Trump has exclusively cultural causes or psychohistorical causes to do with the American Civil War. Therefore, the only appropriate response is a cultural response. And anybody who starts talking about economic stuff is suggesting that the Trump people have legitimate grievances. And since they're suggesting the Trump people have legitimate grievances, they're aiding and abetting the far right, which is this authoritarian movement. And therefore, we have to completely exclude from the discussion everything to do with the economy. Uh, and this has produced a situation where anybody who has any kind of economic critique is being pushed into becoming part of the right and then pushed into picking up all of the cultural discourse, which, of course, floats around. You know, it's the sea. It's the water on the right. How is this book an intervention in the politics of the left? Because you, you talk about like, for example, in the book, you talk a lot about the DSA and Bernie. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. In kind of different ways. Like, how does that experience, I mean, how did that change maybe your own politics, but also inform the book? Before Bernie in 2016, I had a very negative view about you know, what we could do with American democracy, with the democratic system in the United States. Bernie then in 2016 did a lot better than I thought he was going to do that year. And I went, well, if I can be wrong about how well Bernie can do in a Democratic primary, maybe there are other things I've been wrong about. Uh, and maybe I should question a lot of my premises and assumptions and, and give this whole thing a little bit of a try. I also, at the same time, was writing my PhD. And in the course of writing my PhD, I kept running into this problem of, you know, there's major problems with this system. But if you try to bring up any alternatives to the system... People are very afraid of those alternatives. They're very afraid of anything that even reminds them in, in subtle ways of the Soviet Union. And this makes it very difficult to get people to talk about what would be an alternative to our political system. So I thought, well, if we're stuck in this, if our imaginarium is restricted in such a way that we can't imagine an alternative to the democratic system, uh, you know, but Bernie's doing really well in the polls, well, maybe you know, it's not so bad as I thought it was. The trouble is that after 2016, that conclusion on the left seems to have been that Bernie lost the primary because of the narratives about Bernie bros, that uh, the Sanders campaign wasn't culturally progressive enough, that it didn't cater enough to college-educated voters, professional voters who make up the Democratic Party primary base. And so the move in the campaign was to uh, get those people on side by having the campaign have a more cultural emphasis, talk more about race and more about uh, gender and more about guns and to uh, pivot in what it was talking about. Now, in the book, I characterize this as McGovernization, this tendency for left-wing movements to gradually over time become more focused on the cultural sensibilities of college-educated voters 
at the expense of the economic issues that in principle should be able to unite college educated and non-college educated voters as part of an all-inclusive working class. And the tendency to McGovernize eventually creates an antagonism between the non-college educated traditional working class and the college educated professionals. And that effectively splits left-wing movements. So the insistence from the Hillary people in 2016 that the Bernie campaign had to be more culturally progressive was at the same time a concealed insistence that it had to alienate working class voters more than it was doing, that it could not be that much a working class kind of thing. And the acquiescence to that insistence in 2020 meant that the campaign no longer was a mass movement in the way in which it had been in 2016 and did not have the same kind of potential that it previously had. So from where I was sitting, I was criticizing this and trying to get the left to not do these things. But the argument back is, well, how do you win a democratic primary if you don't do this stuff? The democratic primary base does not look like the general electorate. And this has become even more uh, overwhelmingly clear when we start looking at which congressional races is the left competing in. At this point, the left only really tries to compete in heavily gerrymandered Democratic safe seats in blue cities where Hillary Clinton won uh, often 70% or more of the vote. And in the book, I have the, you know, the table where we go through all of the DSA and Justice Democrat endorsed candidates who have won and what the Hillary Clinton vote share is in the district. And there really is no possibility right now of this version of the left winning seats in Congress in seats where Hillary Clinton isn't popular. So how can the left, which is you know, ostensibly critiquing Hillary Clinton and the center of the party, win power within the party or nationally if it only competes in districts where that part of the party is very popular and that part of the party wins easily. It's no longer really effectively representing a critique just on the basis of that fact, regardless of what anybody says or how sincere anybody is. All of the people who are elected can be completely sincere. All of the strategists can be completely sincere in what they're trying to do. But the fact of the matter is, if you have a strategy that only works in a handful of heavily gerrymandered Democratic safe seats, and even then it doesn't always work, sometimes the left loses in those seats, which is just incredible. The whole strategy is about winning those seats. Uh, And even then, it it doesn't always work. Uh, But even if it were working, the consequence of trying to win in those seats and trying so hard to win in those seats is that the left is constantly acquiring more and more McGovernite baggage from running those campaigns, which then makes it impossible to compete anywhere else in the country. Why did you choose McGovern as the kind of historical analogy for this? Yes, because post-68, the post-68 turn was to say, okay, it's no longer possible for everybody to be a worker. Working class has become a labor aristocracy. It's no longer emancipatory. It's not sufficiently opposed to Vietnam. It's not sufficiently pro-civil rights. Uh, It's not sufficiently culturally progressive. Therefore, the revolutionary subject is the one that took to the streets in Paris in 68. That's the student, the college-educated person. That was, I think, the major pivot in left-wing thinking post-68. And I think it's expressed in the United States most clearly in the campaign of George McGovern in 72. So in the book, you say that we suffer from a a disagreement about the meaning of democracy, but that we are stuck with democracy, whether we like it or not. Um, Why is this the case? Why is democracy upheld as a positive value or end in society today? I'm thinking about this question both historically and logically. My big concept, and this comes out of my thesis and 
you know, some of my published academic work is this notion of the embedded democracy, the democracy that's been around so long that nobody can really think outside of it. It has become the whole framework in which you think. And I think that democracies that have been around a really long time, the fact that they've been around a long time induces people to think that, well, this must be a good system, or at least better than other systems, because other systems have been tried in other places, like the Soviet Union, or Nazi Germany, or uh, you know the Ayatollah in Iran. Other regimes have been tried in other places. They haven't lasted as long. They haven't produced the same standard of living. And democracy in the United States, maybe in the UK, maybe in a few other places where it's been around a very, very long time, is associated with higher living standards than alternative regime types. And it's associated with outliving or outlasting these alternative regimes. Uh, those are a couple of the main reasons that I think older democracies have a more overpowering effect on the imaginarium than younger democracies. So if you look at a country like France, right? France is a, a rich country, but it's a country where the Communist Party won pluralities of the vote. It's a country that's had five different republics and two empires and multiple periods of monarchy since the United States was created. It's a country where very clearly you can be French and be a monarchist and you can be French and be a Republican. And you can be a French uh, Gaullist. You can be a French uh, a person who pines for the fourth republic or thinks a sixth republic is necessary. All of these things are compatible with the way that people in France think of what it is to be part of France. In the United States, this commitment is much more avowedly political to the Constitution, to a set of founding fathers. When you go and poll people about the founders, everybody, uh, with very few exceptions, still loves them. So the approval ratings for founders that we think of as, oh, they've been subjected to all this critique in recent years. In the general public, the, the view of Jefferson, the view of Washington, the slave owning, you know, bad founders that everybody's criticized is enormously high. The approval is, you know, 90% plus. The overwhelming consensus is that anything that's wrong with this system is, is our failure on some level to live up to what the founders have given to us. Uh, it's not that the founders were wrong. It's not that the founders were mistaken or gave us something that was fundamentally broken. And all of the efforts by so many people to try to interrogate that narrative have been largely unsuccessful in terms of affecting the general public's view about these questions. Where in history do you think this problem of democracy comes from? Very often when you have a class of people that previously have been disenfranchised or, or haven't had a lot of power, but there are changes in the economic structure that put them in a more important position. Uh, they will make demands to be included in the political system and there will need to be some way of including them, but at minimal cost to the people who are making the concession. So the hope for the people who are trying to be included is that these will be non-reformist reforms, that the uh, procedural changes that will welcome them in will allow them to make more change over time. And that gradually over time, this will enable them to take on a bigger and bigger role in the political system and eventually to dominate it and to kick out the class that has been making these concessions, right? So the paradigmatic model of this uh, you know, working is for the bourgeoisie in uh, you know, a country like the UK, where the power of the landed aristocrats you know, was diminished gradually over time through a series of concessions. And then you have these world wars that annihilate most of the wealth that those aristocrats previously enjoyed. And so there's this, this great weakening. But even in the UK, you know, landowners in the UK still are significant players in the UK relative to other places. If you look at how the British government makes policy, it focuses on landowners more than uh, governments do in places where there have been you know, revolutionary shocks 
more uh, overt, um, fiery class conflict. The fact that the nobles in Britain were able to manage a gradual transition, even when they were weakened very strongly by the world wars and the massive uh, destruction of, of their wealth during those conflicts, uh, you know, it's still remarkable the degree to which landowners are given uh, an important position within British politics. In the case of the workers, the model was to kind of try to do the same thing in places where reformism was tried. It was to try to get concessions to be made to the working class, get them brought into the system, and hopefully by using the concessions to gradually increase the scope. And a distinction is generally drawn among reformists between, say, non-reformist reforms, reforms that are meant to structurally change the balance of class power within the system and gradually improve the position of the workers, and palliative reforms, reforms that are just about keeping people pacified and preventing them from uh, engaging in revolutionary action. So I think the problem with democracy is that oftentimes these reforms are easily confused. It's easy for something that is a palliative reform to be presented as a non-reformist reform when it isn't, right? And then also a lot of stuff that sincerely we believe or might believe uh, to be a non-reformist reform will just turn out to really not have fundamentally performed the function that we think it will. So one of the things I talk about here is that there's often an assumption in the states that because we have this old democratic system, if we updated it with procedural reforms to make it like a newer system, and when we think newer, we're thinking political systems that we created in post-war Europe, in places like Germany or the Netherlands with proportional representation, you know, maybe a unicameral legislature, you know, maybe a, a weaker judicial review or more democratic control over the courts, maybe a more politicized central bank or, or eliminating the central bank. If we make these kinds of procedural changes that this will unlock all of this stuff. And that the only thing that really separates us from European social democracy or democratic socialism is some procedural reforms that would be non-reformist in character. The trouble is in all of these European countries, those reforms are compatible with a gradual slide into the same kind of economic policies that we ourselves are trying to resist. It's not as if proportional representation in Germany or the Netherlands or the Scandinavian countries uh, protects the welfare state or protects, you know, not only does it not extend these things and produce socialism slowly over time, it does not protect them effectively. It slows relative to say the UK where Thatcher gets in with a plurality that is not a majority of the vote and can then very quickly gut a lot of different things. Uh, proportional representation slows that process by making it harder for right-wingers to get big coalitions uh, that will enable them to make those kinds of dramatic reforms. But it doesn't prevent this from happening. Inequality is still growing, economic inequality, uh, wealth inequality is still growing in places like France and Germany. Uh, and the reason that we have, say, all of these protests and demonstrations in France is that this is a gradual, slow, losing position that the working class finds itself in, even in Europe, even in places that have these procedures. And so do you think that democracy in America has changed since its founding in any fundamental way? I mean, it strikes me that there's kind of I don't know, maybe there's two ways you could think about democracy changing. You could think about changing how we make choices, right? Like who gets to vote, how we vote, how like choices are structured. But you could also think of it in terms of changing like the responsibility of government, which comes up in your book when you talk about the fight that FDR had with the Supreme Court over the New Deal. 
Yeah. So do you think that democracy has changed in a like qualitative way in America? And does that have any significance or is something else going on? Yeah. So here I would I would make a break between two kind of different angles to that question. So, of course, the role of government in the United States is different from what it was in the 18th century. Uh, the government does lots of things it didn't do. Liberalism has changed a lot over the course of its you know, lifespan as one of the dominant frames of reference for thinking about politics. At the same time, because the United States has pretty consistently framed itself as a democratic system based on this constitution, from the point of view of the citizen who's thinking about, is this continuity, is this the same political system fundamentally uh, that we've always had? The ordinary person thinks that we have basically the same political system that we've always had, that this system has evolved or changed in various ways, usually that it's grown or improved somewhat, uh, but that it's it's the same system. Whereas in France, where you make a distinction between the Fifth Republic and the Fourth and the Third and the Second and the First and the two empires, there's a sense of regime change, system change, and a notion that you know, if the system isn't working, you go out into the street and you don't cooperate with it until the military turns against the system, the military joins with the people, you know, the revolutionary subject is always armed. Uh, and it's ultimately the soldier who, when he's told to make the people go back to work, refuses to do that. That's always the hero, you know, the person who says no to that order, and is always forgotten, I think, in our contemporary discussions. It's the soldier who doesn't shoot the worker who is the hero. Uh, that guy uh, is is always invoked in France. And there's always this question of what will that soldier do? De Gaulle was that soldier in a sense, you know, uh, in the context of, of you know, Vicky France. Not, you know, then in 68, he's on the opposite side of it. But you know, we don't have that kind of thing in the United States. Our American Civil War doesn't remotely resemble that. Uh, it's not that kind of you know, bunch of people taking to the streets and then the government refusing. It's individual states, individual locuses of power attempting to secede, which is a different kind of civil conflict fundamentally. Uh, so because we don't have anything that looks to the ordinary citizen like a clean break, there is a sense of political system continuity, even if in point of fact, you could say, oh, the system has changed very much. I mean, we used to have a system where there were property requirements for voting in many states. We used to have a system where the senators weren't directly elected. We used to have a slave system where African-Americans were enslaved. Uh, these things have all changed, yes. But from the point of view of the ordinary American, this is a gradual evolving or developing of the same political system. And the fact that these things have changed just shows that the fundamental system is sound, that it can evolve and develop over time, and that it would be a grave mistake to throw it out because that would be betraying the founders in some fundamental way. We noticed this in a lot of interviews that you've done, that sometimes it seems like the interviews that we've seen so far, at least, you're always talking, people are always asking you about the unsolvable problem, but the book isn't really about the unsolvable problem exactly. We were wondering why you wrote a book about the political crisis in particular, as opposed to writing, I don't know, perhaps a critique of culture or an economic sort of, I don't know, treatise or something, or even a critique of society. Why specifically did you write about political crisis? Yeah, so I specifically wrote about political crisis because I think ultimately, if we are to do anything about the economic situation, it will require some kind of political response. And my whole life, I've been looking for what is the political response to the set of problems that we have? 
And we, I start with the unsolvable problem because I don't think it's possible to do politics without understanding you know, the central thing that you have to deal with. Uh, but ultimately, there's got to be some kind of political response uh, because otherwise, there. I, I mean, it, it would just it would just continue uh, unless there is some possibility of people getting fed up with this. And this is why I I focus so much on legitimacy in my work. You know, legitimacy is, I, I think, kind of the other face of ideology as a concept, right? So most of the time, Marxists talk about ideology, talk about uh, you know, ways in which people are. Uh, pushed into acquiescing. But of course, the way in which ideology works is by presenting itself as legitimacy, as an actual explanation for why that you might actually buy into. There's this possibility of actually buying it. And I think to really understand why ideology sticks and why it's so difficult to deal with it, you have to approach it from the point of view sometimes of the one who might go along with it. The legitimation phase is the other aspect of ideology. So if we need to overcome ideology to make the fundamental changes, this also means uh, figuring out how legitimacy works, how it is that the state secures legitimacy for itself. And oftentimes we can be uh, aided in thinking about this by just reading liberal attempts to legitimate the state and just looking at how are liberals trying to legitimate the state. Uh, and, and being a little bit flexible in our perspective, we can view this as kind of two-faced concept, both from the ideology, critical theory, critique standpoint, and the legitimation of trying to build something standpoint. And ultimately, if we were to ever prevail, if we were to ever succeed in overcoming all of this, to do that, we would have to create some kind of, of system. And we would have to explain that system to people in such a way that they would go along with it. So if we spend all of our time saying that every way of explaining a system is just ideology and is just a way of forcing people to do things they don't want to do, when it comes time to actually make something, we will not only be unable to legitimate it, we will feel that trying to legitimate it is wrong on some level. And I think this has afflicted the left. There's a discomfort with you know, recognizing that stuff does have to be legitimated to do anything to act in any way at scale collectively, it must be acknowledged that that will be experienced by some part of the population as coercive, unless you have complete control over how the whole population thinks. Anything that you do that is a coercive act that involves taking property, moving property around, this will be treated, treated by some people as a coercive act that conflicts with their fundamental values. Those people, if you want them to cooperate, it will help you greatly if you can explain the act to them in such a way that they will go along with it or at least not oppose it in the way that they might otherwise. And that for me is why legitimacy is so important. Not only do we have to critique the system as you know, and critique the ways in which it's justified as a form of ideology, we have to formulate what would be our way of legitimating the alternative system. So in thinking about what the alternative system could be, it's important to think about what can be legitimated, uh, what the, the sources or bases of uh, conceptually of legitimation would be, so I spend a lot of time thinking about you know, there are these liberal concepts that are invoked all the time in liberal legitimating uh, legitimation stories, right? Uh, freedom, equality, representation. These are the concepts liberals invoke all the time. At the same time, there are other concepts that do get invoked that are you know, really old that have been invoked forever, like peace, uh, order, uh, stuff like prosperity, right? And a lot of those terms are more associated with discrete performance. So it's easier for states to disappoint those terms. Then there's you know, also medieval concepts, you know, like uh, 
the single unitary Christian God or, or nature. Uh, you know, those are other concepts that get used a lot of the time in, in different stories. And none of those concepts have gone away. They're still around today and political actors use them to explain their acts. Uh, but liberal political actors don't like using those concepts because they view them as unstable or unethical to use and prefer to use the liberal concepts, freedom, equality, and representation. So generally, when Marxists are thinking about building a new society, they think of it as we're evolving liberalism. So we're evolving our use of the liberal concepts. So we have to conceptualize the liberal concepts differently in new or more innovative ways that are more emancipatory than the previous conceptualizations. So we change what freedom means. We change what equality means. We change what representation means uh, to make them more demanding. And I think in particular, anarchists love to do this. They love to take liberal concepts and extend them. Now, I think in the Marxist tradition, there's also uh, a tradition of, of more fundamentally modifying those concepts. So, for instance, uh, I, you know, I think Marx took a lot out of the Republican tradition and was very interested in uh, freedom as non-dependence, uh, as a you know, the structural dependence being a, a core way in which people are not free, uh, not just that you know, particular people are directly interfering with them, but that because they depend on the economic system, on the market, for a wage, they have to conduct themselves in such a way that they remain employable. You know, these are things that fundamentally shrink what we can do and how we can think, but they're not straightforward coercions from a state that says you can't do this or from your boss who says you can't do that. You know, this is a, a system where people will say, of course, you can do anything you want. It's just that you might not be able to keep your job if you do. It strikes me that you know historical Marxism did make at least claims to having you know, supported or that the working class struggle for socialism would create alternative forms of legitimacy through their social organization. I mean, this is what people claim about like the Soviets, for instance, um, uh, or, you know, that that's what the dictatorship of the proletariat would do, or the party, the socialist party, the Marxist party would create some sort of alternative form of legitimacy in society. Um, at the same time, historical Marxism has a sort of taboo on the more straightforward utopias or positing like alternative systems. Both of these seem very different from, you know, the left that we were talking about earlier, which is based on a type of protest um, uh, in particular, and also about criticizing what is first and foremost about saying, we don't like the system, it's bad. And so having kind of a permanent protest position. Why do you think that is? And do you think that this historical Marxist claim to the ability to create other forms of legitimacy is um, true and sort of authentic? Yeah, so I think that the main reason that people don't like to do legitimation uh, in the West is that if you imagine that you're constructing a system, if you imagine that you're explaining or legitimating power, uh, this leads to the kind of thinking that went on in communist states where there were people on the left in power trying to legitimate power arrangements. And so it often leads to engaging with literature or thinking associated with those states. And those states are widely considered to have failed. And the stuff that seemed to work in those states for the period of time in which it did work, you couldn't transpose and try to use in the United States. So there's, I think, a reaction to, okay, anything that comes out of so political theory is associated with failure. So any attempt by the Soviets to legitimate their political system, that's not very likely to help us here. Uh, 
there's a kind of, of desperate attempt to get away from the Soviet project in Western Marxism, which takes the form of being unwilling to even imagine oneself in power and being unwilling to even imagine oneself uh, you know, legitimating a state in a new way. The only way in which people on the left in the West can really imagine themselves legitimating is through extending liberal abstractions to emphasize that they are not this, this bad authoritarian other. I do think that there are some tools we can use to try to build something new. The book itself does not go into all of that. I am hoping in the future to develop thoughts in this direction. Uh, but one of the kind of big things, big moves that I make that often upsets people is that I do feel that there is an exhaustion of the liberal legitimating abstractions and that attempts to capture freedom, liberty, equality, and representation for the left are not working particularly well and don't have a very good track record. I think it's been tried. It's been tried both by anarchists and by Marxists in various ways. And in the book, I kind of run through some of the things that have been tried. And I, I make the case that the trouble is that money tends to control how terms are defined. The way that our, our language works comes out of the material conditions themselves. So if you have a capitalist system in which workers are in a weak position and you have a set of oligarchs and foundations and, and corporations and so on that are sponsoring academic research, that are funding grants, that are uh, you know, making it possible for people to go to school by offering scholarships, this constrains the kind of research that those people can do. And even in cases where you will have, say, new concepts developed that seem to have an emancipatory character, and I think equity at its inception was such a concept, it was developed for an emancipatory purpose. Over time, those concepts can be captured and reconceptualized in a way that makes them fit with the existing system. And so part of our trouble is that it, when we try to get around all of this in a purely theoretical way, uh, we don't engage with the material conditions. Are you saying that the like the ideas that like our concepts are sort of have become like a tool of the ruling class or of like oligarchs? Is that kind of like the idea here? Yeah, that that happens really easily because of the distribution of economic power. Like, for instance, you know, Quentin Skinner, Raymond Goyce, they have uh, you know really wonderful and interesting history of political thought discussions of the concept of liberty or the concept of freedom that have been in the literature for now 20 plus years. You go to an American university setting and you go, you know, uh, what have you read about liberty? And people say Benjamin Constant or they say Isaiah Berlin, if you're you know, really you know, in a place where people aren't getting a lot. Uh, that's that's all you get uh, most of the time in undergraduate courses where you talk about liberty. Now, Quentin Skinner has been around. Raymond Goyce has, has been around. These people are not considered you know, flaming Marxists or flaming critical theorists. They're some of the most exalted names in, in contemporary political theory. Big, big names, very important thinkers. Everybody who you know, does you know, big, serious work on, on liberty or on equality in their, in their academic research would, of course, cite, reference, talk about Quentin Skinner and Raymond Goyce. But the undergraduate doesn't get to hear all of that. Why is it that the undergraduate doesn't get to hear all of that? Yeah, I'm definitely like sympathetic to this idea that uh, like our schools kind of like indoctrinate us. <laughs> but I also kind of want to raise like the early history of the 20th century, namely like the history of socialism, where the idea was that the intellectuals would go down and bring these ideas to the workers. That was kind of the point was to transmit 
historical consciousness of the task of socialism to the working class, but that appears now to be absent. And so I guess my question then is like, is this really then just a problem of like, you know, universities or oligarchs sort of manipulating or distorting our understanding of freedom of these ideas? And if it's more than that, then what are the obstacles? Yeah, so I think that is one of the things that's going on. There's a lot of other things that also make it hard. You know, the book is so full of things that make it hard. Yeah, I think that certainly the fact that a lot of people who go to university don't come out of it with the tools to actually help workers is a major issue. So then when people who come from university think they have those tools, think they have emancipatory concepts, which are not in fact emancipatory and do not in fact speak to the workers' material situation, when they do try to go down, which I think it's still the case that a lot of people do try to go down and be community organizers and, and do that kind of stuff, but they do it with concepts that are uh, not actually tractable. And so what they do is they become frustrated with these people. And I think over the last 20 years, we've seen the kind of liberal college student who wants to go be a community organizer get increasingly frustrated with the communities that they, in theory, are organizing and go, yeah, these people, you just can't uh, share this kind of stuff with them. You have to have a, you know, a, a two-level discourse where there's what goes on in the university and then there's what you tell people. And there's an increasing lack of confidence on the part of the liberal intelligentsia in the capacities of the ordinary person. This stems from the fact that the liberal who thinks that they have an emancipatory doctrine or a doctrine that the worker should sign on to doesn't actually have that doctrine and instead has something else. So I think there's that's one of the things that's going on. And in the book, I kind of talk about this through the balloonist metaphor, where you have you know, these professionals who, uh, you know, they come to the university and they're given a balloon you know, uh, and they, the balloon lets them go up into the sky and they think, oh, I've got a balloon. I'm going to be able to help everybody on the ground because I'm going to be able to see what's going on. Uh, and initially, when you're just a little bit off the ground, you can see what's going on. And you can even give some useful advice to people. And people think, wow, this person's got it. This person is, is with me, right? Uh, the trouble is there's an incentive to get higher and influence more people. The larger the number of people you influence, the uh, you know, nicer your balloon becomes. They give you all these amenities. Your balloon gets to you know, look all cool. And so there's a tendency to go higher to see you know, more people and talk to more people and uh, you know, call out of your bullhorn. Now, with the bullhorn, people on the ground might be able to hear you, but you can't hear them. You're too busy shouting over them with your bullhorn. As you get higher up, you can't hear the people on the ground. And you also can't really see their situation anymore in any detail. So the stuff you're telling them to do is increasingly not motivated by an accurate appraisal of their material situation. It's motivated by your need to get more people to follow you so you get a cooler balloon. And gradually, you can't, you know, the people that you're seeing are the other balloonists in the sky with you. They're not even the people on the ground. Uh, and at that point, generally, people start to lose their touch. They lose their ability to influence anybody on the ground because they're way too far up for anything that they're saying to have any kind of relevance. But that's not a problem for the system. They can just be given a pension and shuffled off and you go find a new person on the ground. The system doesn't need it to work ultimately for any particular person. It just needs new people all the time who think it will work, who will go and perform this role for some period of time. And I think that that's a, a major, major issue. Now, even assuming that you have people who know what they're doing, who then try to get involved in American politics, you then have all of the issues that I talk about in uh, you know, the, the last chapter where we start getting into, you know, what if you tried to build an organization that was really based on you know, 
what I would consider to be the best possible view of this you can have at this juncture. Uh, even then, you start running into a series of institutional and structural blocks that are very difficult to remove or to make up for or deal with. So if you're running in the Democratic primary, as Bernie Sanders was, well, you're going to be pressured to take on these McGovernizing positions that will make it harder for you to attract the working class voters. Uh, if you try to run in the Republican primary, well, all the money in the Republican primaries comes from these very, very rich people. It's very difficult to get money for a working class campaign in a Republican primary. And the people that we've seen who have tried to do this kind of realignment thing with the Republican Party, it's completely not worked. And at this point, they admit that it doesn't work. Uh, you know, Saurabh uh, you know, wrote this piece recently that just blatantly admits none of it worked and it was a mistake, right? So be, the primary system forces you to go after voters who don't look like the general public, and they, it forces you over time to have a campaign that is less accessible to the workers. So even if you come into this with right thinking, you will then be pushed by the primary system to produce a campaign that is not actually a campaign that fits with uh, what's right. And so then you will have to, over time, you know, you know, over time, that this force of that incentive will drag you, no matter how well you think, into a campaign that's more conventional. The thing about an electoral system is that it's, it's a little bit Darwinian in the sense that there are certain behaviors that give you an advantage electorally. And if you refuse to use those behaviors because you think they're wrong, that will just make you uncompetitive. And the trap for a lot of movements on both the left and the right is that the stuff that they have to do to be competitive kills their ability to grow long term. So they're able to win some number of elections, but this also boxes them and marginalizes them and puts them in a permanently marginal role. Once they're in a permanently marginal role, then the individual political actors become focused mainly on just surviving and continuing to win elections. So the members of the squad and the DSA and the Justice Democrat and court endorsed candidates, they find they can't do anything and then they just need to do whatever's necessary to win. That means just playing the same cultural game that the people they criticize play. And it means trying to pass off their petty victories, their small symbolic victories as, as meaningful and substantial, which is really the same thing that the establishment Democrats already do. And so gradually their radical position is just a rhetorical position or just an intellectual position. It's not one that they can actually practice while performing, uh, while winning elections, while continuing to be in Congress. And the, the trouble is that it takes years for people to figure this out. And by the time they figure it out, it's too late and their material incentives are completely dominated by this. You know, who, who could admit after having spent years and years of their life to get into Congress that it was a mistake to do all of that and that they should just leave? Uh, what else would, would someone do with their life? It's much easier to imagine that maybe if we try a little harder and we try different things, we'll win more seats at the next election. But the longer someone is in this position, the less able they are to actually speak to the ordinary concerns of people. You know, once upon a time, Nancy Pelosi was not that different a person from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She really wasn't. Uh, you know, and, and in the same way that AOC becomes Nancy Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi was at one point in time AOC, really was, with all of the positives that people once attached to AOC. Those things, I think, probably were true in the very, very beginning, maybe. Uh, and all of that was at one point true. Of, oh, Hillary. Hillary yeah. was, uh, yeah, she went to the 68 Republican primary. Yeah, where she, yeah, she supported Nelson Rockefeller. She cried when Nixon won. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, Hillary Clinton was never as good as Nancy Pelosi. So I kind of want to like bring us back to like an earlier question I had asked, um, namely like why are we stuck with democracy? Because um, it seems that you're also talking about like the limits to like practice today and that there are a lot of like structural and institutional obstacles to practice, to, politi to, to politics. Um, and I was just wondering whether or not these things are merely structural or institutional. It seems that you're saying that they're also not, right? That, you know, it also has to do with the fact that with the concepts that we get with with our education or our miseducation in university. And I was just sort of curious, like, why we're sort of stuck with that miseducation, I guess. Back to that first chapter, the fundamental issue is that capital mobility is increasing. And as capital mobility increases, people who have enough money to be able to move it all over the place, all over the world, those are the people who have the most leverage and the most power in the system because they're mobile. States are not mobile. They're territorially trapped. So they have to attract money, which can be there, doesn't have to be there. That makes the state a customer for money, right? The ordinary person has some level of mobility, but not as much mobility as this as this money, and so is also more limited in their power and scope. And this extends, you know, even to people who are relatively educated and in theory can move to another country. It's a lot harder for you to physically move to another country than it is for a rich person to move their money around the world. So the central argument here is that the more mobile capital becomes, the more powerful the rich become vis-a-vis -vis everybody else. And this expresses itself in every institution, every institution, including the university system. The university system is not uh, immune to the overall material changes that are going on in society. So when people think that there are certain institutions, which by their very nature are sites of revolution or sites of struggle. And I think the major mistake is that post 68, an entire generation was completely convinced that the student was the revolutionary subject, that the university is the institution which can produce the revolution. So an entire generation of people became convinced that just by struggling within the university setting, you could accomplish something. The trouble with all of that is that as they were doing this, the universities materially became much more right-wing institutions. As people were trying to use the universities to do left-wing things, the universities became actually much more right-wing. And so all of the concepts and theory that seemed to be emancipatory in the 70s and 80s and 90s and 2000s all of this stuff did not ultimately issue in anything that was genuinely emancipatory because it could all be reprocessed through the university system in a way that brings all of this stuff back into alignment. And what I think ultimately the function of critical theory in the last quarter of the 20th century was, is to give the people who run the society lots of ideas about how to run it in a more effective and more totalizing way. Uh, ways of overcoming the resistance that would otherwise be kicked out. What the academic does is the academic offers an early instance of a kind of resistance, which will appear in a larger form later on. Uh, and in calling attention to that possible side of resistance, give the state a mechanism by which it can begin already the process of dealing with that site. And so what we've really been doing is we've been you know, flying our, our uh, strategies through the academy in front of everybody in such a way that you know, everybody can see what it is that we might think to do. All of this stuff about, you know, what about power, knowledge, nexi, and can you really trust the truth? And all of this stuff is prefigured in the post-structuralist literature you know, decades before by figures who thought of themselves as genuinely emancipatory figures, you know, people like you know, Leotard and Deleuze and, and, and so on. Uh, all of that is anticipated, and yet all it does is it puts the state in a better position when that stuff actually does take manifest as some sort of movement uh, to deal with it.
So what is the role of critical theory supposed to be? Does it have a role? What ought it to do? Yeah, so originally, the role of critical theory made sense in a society where if you delegitimate the institutions by highlighting contradictions in a society where that produces revolutionary activity, it's much more straightforwardly and obviously the case that by highlighting contradictions and then finding a way to get those contradictions out of the university and to the ordinary person, you would produce revolutionary activity, right? It makes total sense in a society where a contradiction produces delegitimation, which produces revolution. But for this to happen, you have to believe that that's how it works. If there's a contradiction, that will delegitimate. And if you delegitimate, you'll get revolution. It doesn't work that way because contradictions do not necessarily uniformly delegitimate anymore. At this point, many contradictions are functional and many forms of hypocrisy contribute in some way to the legitimation of the state. And some of the theorists of hypocrisy in the realist canon, people like Judith Schlar and David Rutzman, have done wonderful work on how hypocrisy and contradiction can strengthen ultimately the state in various ways. Uh, all of that is overlooked by Marxists who assume that if you heighten a contradiction, it will bring on delegitimation. Uh, secondly, in addition to heightening contradictions not bringing on delegitimation necessarily, even when there is delegitimation, it doesn't produce the revolution in the embedded democracy, in the democracy which does not have the imaginary to conceive of an alternative political system that is compelling. And insofar as you can conceive of a compelling system, you know, people don't believe they could actually do it. They think any of the means that they might use to actually do it would not work or would produce something that wouldn't actually live up to what they would like to do. They imagine that, well, if I do a revolution and it involves any kind of violence, then that will, of course, produce a debased, deformed state that won't be any good. So therefore, I have to completely you know, square off that. And then, well, if you start looking at nonviolent strategies, those tend to be more reformist in character and tone. So this unsolvable problem that you describe, it seems to be neoliberalism or you know what in the 70s before they had that term, they would call it maybe the flexible economy. Uh, what you just said reminded me actually of a book that I've been reading recently by David Harvey, The Condition of Postmodernity, where he talks about like the change in his time to neoliberalism and how the postmodernists seem to be prefiguring what's going to happen. Um, and also that he felt oh, the Marxists are completely bankrupt in this moment, theoretically. Um, but nevertheless, despite maybe desires to undo that change and to return to Fortis Keynesianism, um, you know, and I think the DSA does want this, or at least some people in the DSA do, I think your book seems to suggest that that's not possible. Um, exactly. So why isn't that possible? And why do people want to do it anyway? <laughs> Yeah. So to get back to, you know, the fifties and sixties, you know, and I think that the people on the left who want to do this, uh, you know, oftentimes they just get accused of being racist or sexist by wanting something like the fifties and sixties. I think it should be acknowledged that all of those people, what they really think should have happened is that in the fifties and sixties, instead of pivoting to the students, the excluded group should have been included in the worker movement and that that should have been the basis for ultimately including that instead of abandoning the workers in favor of these other groups or these other frames, that those things should have been assimilated into the worker movement at that time. And certainly there were people in the 50s and 60s who made arguments for things like that. Uh, so I want to be charitable in recognizing that it, it's this is not a purely cultural kind of issue with, with this. It's an economic problem. The economic problem is that the model of the 50s and 60s is based on restricting capital mobility. 
It's based on capital controls. It's based on trade controls. And it's only very gradually over the course of the 50s and 60s that these trade controls are relaxed. Now, they're almost immediately, the goal is to relax them. So from the very beginning of the 50s and 60s, they were doing the GATT trade rounds and trying to relax the trade controls. And as you relax the trade controls, you expose the worker in the rich countries to more competition from workers in poorer countries where the wages aren't as good, the labor laws aren't as good, the union rights aren't as good. And that necessarily puts the worker in a weaker position structurally. Even if you expand the unions, even if you expand the labor rights internally within the society, the fact that the worker is subject to this competition will gradually weaken the worker's structural position in a way that's bigger and more fundamental than any kind of playing around with rights that you do uh, in these countries. And in all of these countries in the 50s and 60s, there was an expansion of rights while the foundation of those rights was undermined and eroded through uh, the rise of capital mobility. So if you wanted to get back to something like that, you would have to find a way to sever the capital mobility. Now, the event that severed the capital mobility that made that stuff possible was World War II. So anyone who wants to do this has to explain how you would sever or greatly diminish capital mobility without a world war, or they have to advocate for a world war. And this is where in the book I start talking about Walter Schiedel, who I think does a, a wonderful job of just laying out when are the actual moments in which there has been some kind of major redistribution of wealth or collapse in the uh, power of a particular class of wealthy people? They tend to be cataclysmic events rather than things that are achieved through a political system. They tend to be either violent revolutions, uh, wars, interstate wars, big interstate wars, by the way, not Iraq or Vietnam or uh, Ukraine, big giant interstate wars that are multiple years long and kill very large numbers of people and destroy a lot of physical wealth, right? Uh, and require huge increases in tax rates to fund them. So wars of that kind, pandemics, but not something like COVID, something like the, the bubonic plague, something that kills maybe a third of the population, right? And then you know, state collapse, you know, some kind of you know, asteroid strikes, supervolcano erupts, the state can no longer function. Those are the things that ultimately perform this, this role. And you know, even the Soviet project, it begins in a world war that disrupts things to such a degree that you're able to get certain things to happen politically that were not possible prior to that point. So we have to recognize that the 50s and 60s are the legacy of the World War era, that they were straightforwardly paid for with the blood of millions of people, right? Now, a lot of people will say intellectually or trying to be edgy that, of course, we have to water the tree of liberty with the blood of millions of people. But then, you know, when you start talking about, okay, so what would that involve now? Uh, well, to actually sever this amount of trade, you'd need a very sizable great power war, I think, probably between the United States and China. The easiest way to start one would be to say, uh, blatantly try to reclassify Taiwan as uh, either an independent state, or if you really wanted to insist on it, if you were running the United States and you wanted to insist on a great power war, you would try to make Taiwan the 51st state which there is some chunk of people in Taiwan who, who might be interested in and have historically been interested in doing, you could astroturf something like that. You could go find somebody like Ahmed Chalabi in Iraq who says this is what people in Taiwan really want. And you could try to generate a sense that this is actually you know, the self-determining interest of what you know, people in Taiwan want. You get people into the government in Taiwan who say this is what people in Taiwan want. You can create a situation where it seems as if this is the case, right? And then anybody who opposes this is against the self-determination of the people and so on. 
you could do something like that and create a big conflict that would sever and disrupt Pacific trade. And in doing that would not just disrupt, say, US-China trade, but disrupt trade with all of the states in that area, you know, Japan and Korea and Vietnam. And that would produce enormous inflation. There would be supply chain disruption. There would be shortages of things. It would be extremely chaotic. And in that environment, you could restructure the rules of the international trade system. You could write new rules. You could reinstate lots of these different things. Now, even if you did all of that, the odds are then that unless you were much more careful than they were after World War II, that after the war is over, there would be a series of things like that, and there would be a reopening of the trade. And then all of this would repeat itself unless you do something more fundamental and more totalizing. But it would be an opportunity for someone to do something more fundamental or more totalizing if there were, in fact, any organizations or movements prepared to do anything like that. Uh, now, I can't good conscience argue for something like that. And I don't think most people can or should argue for something like that. Certainly, nobody should argue for something like that unless they've got a really good plan for how to make appropriate use of something like that. And I don't think anybody has a really good plan. Uh, in terms of how else could it happen, you know, you're really looking at big exogenous events to disrupt capital mobility. So uh, if you try to do it without one of those big events, what will happen is that it will appear that you are deliberately creating shortages or raising the prices of various goods, that you are waging a kind of war on the living standard of your population. Because even if over time, cutting these links would give the workers more leverage and allow them to agitate for higher wages or higher standards of living. For quite a while, you'd have to redraw all the supply chains. And during that period of redrawing the supply chains and making it possible to produce these things more locally, there would be shortages of, of most goods and there would be enormous price spike. And this stuff is, is very politically toxic. You can't win elections doing that and appearing to do it voluntarily as your economic policy. People will say, you say you're trying to improve our lives, but you're making them worse. Uh, and they wouldn't be wrong in the near term. You would be making them worse in the near term. Uh, the, with the electoral system, you can't survive politically long enough to do something like that. So the only way that you could do it is with some kind of exogenous shock that you would have to try to orchestrate. Uh, and somebody could do that. But that's you know, this is a very dangerous way to try to pursue all of this. I think it would be much better to try to get some kind of multilateral strategy going where you have this movement making progress in multiple states at the same time so that those states can come together and talk to each other. The issue is getting people elected in uh, or in power in many different states all over the world that would be interested at the same time in doing something like this. And for this to happen, there would have to be much stronger left-wing movements in many, many places all at once. In the late 19th and early 20th century, I mean, it strikes me with the, especially with the example of World War I, that Kautsky in his book about war and socialism, but then also later Lenin, um, make an argument that the organization and success of the international electorally and socially in nations across Europe, especially, um, is leading to a crisis which will take the form of a war, and that that war will also be the opportunity for revolution. Um, I think it's in Weber's speech to German soldiers that he gave about socialism, where he kind of accuses them basically of being willing to risk war um, for their ideas and more or less calls them crazy people. But do you think? you know, what was the basis for that sort of idea? Do you think it is just kind of craziness? Is it dangerous? Yeah, I kind of wonder your opinion about it. Yeah, so, you know, Lenin had 
the good fortune of having that war get started by people who aren't him. So he doesn't ultimately bear responsibility for the war. However, he very much thought that a war was necessary for him to prevail. He wanted to have a sufficiently good organization that he could take advantage in the event of a war. But uh, you know, he recognized that he would not be able to just by organizing get there without some kind of cataclysmic event. Now, most of the time, people try to get around this by going, well, won't capitalism produce a crisis that is sufficient in scale that isn't a war, that's just an economic crisis? And won't that crisis enable, you know, or some crisis that's smaller? The thing that people always do is they, they want to think that a small crisis can perform the role of a big crisis because they can't bear to think of themselves as on the side of a big crisis because big big crises are terrible things. So people will say, oh, COVID, this will allow the workers finally to you know, gain the leverage they need to push for wage increases. Or they'll go, oh, 2008, this will finally allow us to you know, build a Bretton Woods 2.0. I mean, Nicholas Sarkozy even said, oh, let's do Bretton Woods 2.0 after 2008. It was surprising the range of people who thought something like that made sense at that juncture. But ultimately, these crises are too small. At this point, states have a lot of experience managing economic crises. They have a lot of tools for getting through them. And because of this restricted imaginarium, it's very easy to buy off the population in these crises because the population is scared of actually doing the things that the state is preventing them from doing by buying them off, right? When the state sends you a you know, $1,200 check you know, because of COVID, uh, you're not really willing in the first place to do revolutionary activities. You take the $1,200 check and go, wow, isn't this great? I didn't have to do anything for this. Uh, and you're, you're bought off and you're pacified. I think that's the situation for most people in the country. They're surprised even to get anything at all from the state. When the check comes bearing the signature of the president, they feel special, like he, they've been seen. Uh, you know, there's really not an actual appetite for revolution in the COVID case. So the buying off, you know, maybe wasn't even necessary. And there are people, of course, who argue, you don't even need to do this. Why even bother with doing that? Uh, doing that suggests you might do other things you might do more later. So why even bother with doing just that? So that the scale of the crisis that's, that would be necessary is very large. And uh, the case might be made that a conflict between the United States and China over Taiwan status would happen regardless of whether there was anyone in power interested in it happening. But I do think that Liberals understand that that conflict, certainly if it occurred in the near term, would devastate capital mobility and devastate the economic system that they are very attracted to. So I don't think it's very likely that liberals uh, would start something like that. The right might be willing to start something like that. But if the right is in power at the point at which something like that happens, it, it's very difficult for me to envision how the left would take advantage of that, certainly not without much stronger forms of organization than presently exist. And that, to me, seems to be the fundamental obstacle. You brought up earlier Benjamin Constant as like a way that students are maybe taught about political theory. And it made me think about kind of my own, you know, the education that like we would get in university about political science, that there seemed to be people in the past, especially in the 18th century, people like Constant or even Immanuel Kant or Thomas Jefferson, who think that modern liberty is not based on political participation, but based on a social freedom and even a freedom, you know, that must be protected from any form of government, even a good one, right? Or one that you might endorse, um, which is why Thomas Jefferson supported the Bill of Rights. And then in the 20th century, there are people like, I don't know, Hannah Arendt, 
who are looking at what happened with all of these crazy Marxists and fascists and whatever, and saying, well, it seems as though Hobbes was right, that social freedom can't have its own basis. It needs to be based on something else, based on like a form of political freedom. And what you've described throughout this interview and what comes up, I think, again and again in your book is that today the horizon seems to be really limited to politics, that participation in politics and like greater power in politics seems to be an end in itself. Um, and so we were wondering, what is the relationship between political freedom and social freedom or political action and social action? Um, and why does it seem as though politics is like a value today that, you know, society kind of wants to uphold political participation as a good? Yeah, so I think that part of why I always like to highlight Constant as a little bit of a propagandist is because what Constant does in drawing this distinction between modern and pre-modern, or which we see in other forms in enlightenment and pre-enlightenment, this distinction has this mystical effect on everybody, uh, where almost everyone affirms this distinction exists. There's some disagreement about where you draw the line. Who's the first modern thinker? Is it Hobbes? Is it Machiavelli? Who is it? Uh, you know, is Locke a modern thinker? There are all these history of political thought questions which presume that the line is, is in some way real, that reify the line. The brilliance of Constant is that he was able to get people to do this uh, by drawing this line in this, in this way. And I think that the uh, when you are trying to get people to pivot in the way that they understand a concept so that you can legitimate a new and fundamentally different political project, the most effective way that you can do this is to say, here's how we used to understand this concept. And you flatten out any variation in how it was understood. This is the old way, right? Then we have the new way, right? And the old way no longer works because it doesn't fit with the conditions. The new way fits the conditions better. But don't worry, we still need a little bit of the old way. We can't completely disregard the old way. We just have to subordinate the old way to the new way. So yes, there still needs to be a certain amount of political participation, Constant says. Otherwise, you could get despotism and tyranny. And so you need a population that's vigilant and is involved enough for that purpose. But the population doesn't need to have the huge, expansive set of virtues. It doesn't need the kind of civic education or political involvement that ancient or medieval populations presumed was necessary. And since it doesn't need all of those things, you can include the merchant class, which is not a very educated class at that time, which is not very well versed in the Western tradition. You can include that class uh, in politics, uh, even though it may have all of these defects and not be virtuous and not be mature, as Weber says, right? You can include them because they don't have to do all of the things that someone would have needed to do to be involved in politics in an ancient or medieval society. The expectation for them is much lower. They just need to play this kind of vigilant role. They don't actually need to make all of the decisions themselves. And uh, you know, one of the consequences of, of this way of thinking is that politics is this, uh, you know, from the very start in Constant's theory, an endangered thing. Now, it's been demoted. It's no longer the case that being included in politics means being a noble or being a, you know, a senator in ancient Rome. It doesn't mean that you have to hold office or be in office. Uh, and so from this point forward, everyone is included, but what it means to be included is less and less and less and diminishes and diminishes to the point at which being included and being not included come back together. In, in my book, I call this the American subaltern, the population which is only included in the most nominal possible sense. 
and which doesn't actually have any meaningful role uh, in really any movement of any political faction at this stage. And so a lot of you know, left-wing thought is about activating this thing. But what has happened over the last century is that the role of that movement, uh, of, of that part of the population in politics has just contracted and contracted and contracted and contracted to the point at which most of the people in that uh, category have dropped out and have embraced the forms of enclavism and uh, the four Fs that I talk about uh, in the later stages of the book. These kind of retreat zones from politics where you go if you... And these are the things that are framed in Constant as the wonderful ways you exercise your uh, modern liberty, your private liberty. You exercise them in the family and you exercise them in your faith and you exercise them. And you're getting involved in different kinds of clubs and social organizations concerned with different things. The trouble is that these things are no longer wonderful places to go because that public-private distinction that was drawn was always a little bit false and a little bit misleading. All of the zones that are considered private depend ultimately on there being a good public realm that can sustain those things and support them in various ways. It's never been the case that the private realm exists totally independently of the public. And so all of these zones are gradually affected over time by the malaise that afflicts the public realm. And the, you know, the supposition in say someone like Adam Smith is that this private realm will give people an appropriate enough level of civic education that they'll be able to participate in politics effectively enough that the political system will at the very least be able to sustain the private realm, will be able to sustain civil society. And sustaining it means, of course, having a civil society, which can then produce people who will then be politically talented enough to sustain the civil society realm. Ultimately, the state serves freedom and it serves freedom in the sense that it creates and protects the realm of civil society organizations. The civil society organizations are in a shambles now. They don't work, they're no longer functional. The state has failed to protect them. All of these zones are collapsing. So now people don't have liberty in the other sense either because the state has no is no longer able to create a functioning space for churches, create a functioning space for families, create a functioning space even for people who are retreating into more contemporary forms of civilization, uh, of civil society, like you know, fandoms on the internet devoted to particular entertainment franchises or to particular tech billionaires. These are the kinds of ersatz substitutions where you position a corporation as a kind of mediating figure. Yeah. Uh, all of this stuff is is in a shambles, and it's all being politicized in destructive and unhelpful ways. You know, at this point, you, know, you have every fandom and it is divided along whether they think the content is too progressive or too conservative. And you know, every tech billionaire, you know, there's this question about what side of the cultural divide they're on, and they can no longer stay out of it. You know, Zuckerberg and Musk have to be political, uh, whether they want to or not. They they must uh, acquire some kind of cultural balance. So all of this is destroying the functionality of all of these spaces. And so I think in, in this situation, the most effective thing for us to do would be to just draw a similar kind of line, just like Constant drew. And the line would be, of course, a little bit propagandistic. It wouldn't be totally right because everything always builds on what came before. And what we call enlightenment, what we call modernity is shot through with pre-enlightenment and pre-modern stuff. Completely shot through with it is in no way a clean break from any of it. It's always been overstated the degree to which it's a clean break. But we need to act as if we can do the same thing now. We need to, you know, people make all these comparisons to different time periods in history. Is this like 1848? Is it like 1917? Is it like the 80s in the Soviet Union? Is it like the 70s? Is it like the 30s? What's it like? If there is a period, and I don't really like any of these historical comparisons, because I think we should look at the situation on its own terms. But if you were to make a comparison, I'd say it's like the 18th century, where we need to draw a new line between the paradigm that was used in that period and what we're doing now. And of course, 
the concepts from that period, like liberty, and freedom, and equality, and representation, they will still be around. They're not going anywhere, but they need to be demoted in favor of something new. They need to take on a more subordinate subsidiary role in the same way in which, say, God and nature in the Enlightenment, they, those things don't go away, but they no longer play the central role in legitimating the state, right? We need to come up with something new and different. Now, this is something that's going to take me a long time to sort out exactly what that something new and different is. I'm very interested in it. Uh, I think that it will involve working on some of this stuff that is older than the Enlightenment, uh, just as the Enlightenment involved working with some of that stuff that's older than the Enlightenment, and finding ways to combine these things and mix them together in new ways. That's what Constant himself did. He took con the concept of freedom, which was an ancient concept, and he played with it in a new way, uh, while at the same time drawing a sharp line between his freedom and that freedom. We're going to have to do something similar, and it's going to have to be just as fundamental. I think it's it's going to go beyond just evolving, say, freedom. I think it's going to involve creating a conceptual space in which the liberal concepts are like God or nature, where they are seem to be firmly of another epoch, but of course, still here, still with us. And we'll, we'll turn the liberals into actual reactionaries in the sense that they will actually have concepts that to some degree seem to us to belong to a different time or place. Uh, that's what I think we ultimately have to do. Now, I can try to do that in theoretical terms, but doing it as a purely theoretical project is not workable. And I think that's in evidence in terms of what's been going on in the academy and the university setting. I, you know, I can't pretend that I can just have an academic project that that will, will accomplish something. And this book, part of why I talk so much about the situation in this book is that I am trying in some way to help those who are doing work outside of the university setting. We're doing non-theoretical work. We're doing the real work of making something that can actually take any ideas I come up with uh, forward in a way that makes them tractable. I want these people to get a better strategy, get a better strategy so that if I spend my life theorizing, there's somebody who can use it, somebody who can, who can do something with it. Otherwise, I'll end up in the same position as all those post-structuralist theorists, as you know, Leotard and Deleuze, where they die and their work is appropriated by liberals. Yeah, I think this is a good time to bring up uh, like the most mystifying part of your book, um, where you quote uh, Tolkien. The quote reads, the way is shut. It was made by those who are dead and the dead keep it. And so you talk about how like uh, that we need like something new. We need like uh, like new ideas, a new concept of freedom and so on. We need to draw this sharp line. Even though like the founding fathers are dead or that uh, communism and fascism appear to be dead ideologies, liberalism, Marxism are also maybe dead, that these like what you call musical people uh, may not be moved by the book and still um, may be attracted to these to these dead ideologies. And so then my question is, why do these people exist? And like, why do people want to resurrect the dead? Yeah. I mean, this is, you know, the Quixotism. Uh, you know, and I've written a couple of blog posts, nothing very serious about Quixotic socialism. This idea that, uh, you know, fundamentally, we need to go back in time to some other time when there was potential that no longer exists. Uh, and that if we could get back there, that would just be so great. You know, if we could just not be the kinds of people that are produced by this context and instead be the kinds of people who are produced by a different context, a context when people were better and stronger and so on. It's a very reactionary kind of thought, but it's a thought that is shot through with the existing socialist movement. The existing socialist movement loves imagining going back to different dead contexts and being part of those dead contexts. Uh, it's 
funny because the most radical people are the most obsessed with trying to you know, be uh, the equivalent of Don Quixote, someone who's a knight in shining armor. They want to be on the streets in 1848. That's really what they want. They want to be there in 1917. That's what they really, just like, you know, Don Quixote wants to be a knight. Uh, And it's not different from the person on the right who goes and, you know, gets really into HEMA, you know, and goes and does, you know, European martial arts, you know, with the sword and is all like obsessed with, you know, uh, integralism or stoicism or whatever antique thing. It's the same thing, really the same thing. And people don't, people don't see that because there's still, it's couched in all of those radical terms that are so familiar to us. Uh, But I think really all of that stuff has become a form of reaction at this point. Uh, The difficulty is what would not be reaction? What would be something that isn't reaction? That's really my starting point. What what wouldn't be reaction? What isn't some kind of nostalgia or some kind of Quixotism? Uh, And that's a a doozy of a question to answer. I'm willing to spend all my time working on it, but I insist that the people who are building movements and who are making things go about it in a way that actually connects with working people. Because if they don't, uh, there's no possibility for theory. Theory can't do anything without other kinds of people. There's this bit where I talk about Eric Hoffer, uh, who's often a conservative theorist, but he says, you know, to have any kind of major kind of thing, you need a a person of words, someone to theorize something new. And then you need crazy people who will destroy what exists. And then you need uh, sensible people who will put things back together on the basis of the thinking. The thinking motivates both the crazy people and it motivates the practical people. It motivates both the critic who focuses on the sense in which the old system is an ideology, and it motivates the person who, who puts things together, who creates order, who is focused on legitimation. Those two people are different people generally, and the person who theorizes is a separate person. No one person can do all of these things. And the delusion of the theorist is in thinking that the theorist is not just the person of words, but also the destroyer and also the builder. These are different people. And oftentimes they're different organizations, even you know, different uh, you know, movements, different decades. They can be different, you know, very different from each other in all kinds of ways. But, you know, everybody wants to be the main character and the main character has to do all of it. They have to have the great idea and wreck the old thing and make the new thing. But nobody's going to do that. We all have to accept that we have roles. We have roles. There are things we're good at and things we're not good at. Uh, And so in that part of the book, I'm trying to talk to people who are not me and aren't theorists and who need to act, who are completely fixated on the need to act. Uh, people for whom saying, you know, these forms of action don't work will will not, that won't work because these people need to act. They can't not act. It's it's who they are. It's what they are. So for these people, there needs to be something for them to, to, to work with. And that's what the theorist's job is. It's to give these people something useful to work with. Because if the theorist doesn't perform this function, if the theorist only engages in critique, for instance, then these people will not know what to do. And they'll do things that don't make any sense. And, and so there's, there's got to be some possibility of making that transmission. But that transmission becomes very difficult. If everybody's embedded in the university system and everybody's dependent on the university system for an income, then the incentives that govern the university system will govern the kind of theory that comes out, which is why I think most people in the academy aren't able to perform this kind of role. Most people in the academy are not in an economic position where they can indulge in doing the kinds of theory that might actually be useful to workers. They have to do the kinds of theory that's compatible with moving up in the career, uh, which is therefore ultimately compatible with getting grant money. Uh, 
which is therefore compatible with rich people and their interests. Anything that's about grants is about rich people. Anything. Anything that's about foundations is ultimately about rich people. Those words are just ways that they launder, convince an oligarch to give you money. Right. So the only way that a theorist can do any of this really is to be in some way immunized to all of that, to have you know some source of money that is independent from all of that, that gives them the ability to criticize all of that and to, to some degree stand outside it. So that's what I'm trying to do. I thank you for asking me about the Lord of the Rings bit because nobody ever asks me about the Lord of the Rings bit. But the you know the Lord of the Rings is I think uh, you know, what I try to do there is use something which is very clearly you know a conservative text, an old kind of text, to say something different with it. Uh, and this this reading is about you know what about the person who just really wants to be Aragorn, really wants in life to be Alexander the Great. You know this kind of person is very useful because this person will do insane stuff, you know stuff that nobody else is willing to do. Uh, you need this kind of person, and yet uh, you know if this kind of person has the wrong attitude. Uh, or is inspired by the wrong things, it's completely terrible. You know, and you need you know, movements and organizations. You know, it's not just about the, the leader figure, the individual. And I, I try to emphasize throughout that chapter that there's a parallel here between the person and the form of organization. There are types of organizations that are good at doing different kinds of work. But part of what I hope will make that part of the book charismatic and compelling for, for people is to talk about that figure. You know, if you really have your heart set on being the, the important political figure, you know, what it is that you have to grapple with, what it is that you have to deal with, and how you should think about the situation that you're in. Thanks so much, Ben. Thank you so much. Yeah, yep. that was really great. Is there anything that you want to say, like, to people who might listen to this? In terms of just what I would say is I always have fun doing platypus stuff, and uh, uh, you know, I, I go to stuff uh, if invited. So feel free to think of me for future things. Ben, thank you so much. Thank you. This has been a production of the Platypus Affiliated Society, featuring original tracks by Thomas Villaggi. Platypus is an international membership-based organization that hosts reading groups, public fora, research, and journalism focused on problems and tasks inherited from the old, new, and post-political left for the possibilities of emancipatory politics today. Platypus also publishes articles by thinkers and activists on the left in the monthly publication, The Platypus Review. To contact, learn more about Platypus, or to access the entire archive of Platypus reviews and panel recordings, please visit us online at platypus1917.org. That's the word platypus, followed by the numerals 1917.org. Bye!